Happy Jackie Robinson Day, baseball fans, and thanks for checking out the 75th edition of Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday glance back at motion pictures with athletic-type things in them. Caution, we spoil the secrets of the movies in question. I'm the not-exactly-thin-skinned, but certainly not thick-skinned infielder who's always had the guts not to fight back because I'm too much of a wimp, Ryan Ellis. And here's the Rookie of the Year during the 2019 CBC League baseball season, softball season, who didn't come here to make friends, Chris DiGregorio. That's true, Ryan. Thank you very much. I did come here locked and loaded with a Ben Chapman-style rant at you, but I realized the entire thing would have to be bleeped out in order for this to be <laughs> at least a bit listenable. So I'm just going to toss that aside and say I still think back fondly on that 2019 softball season, especially when you invited me to shower with the team, much to the chagrin of everybody <laughs> else on the team. But it was appreciated. <laughs> I often said it, if we had a Rookie of the Year that year, and we had five new players, including you, you would have won the award. And also, I've rarely been called a honky, but if you like to, and this podcast, this podcast only, call me honky at your leisure. Okay. We're both extraordinarily white. Oh yeah, and what better movie for two middle-aged white men to talk about than one that deals with breaking down racial barriers. <laughs> Things we know so much about. Well, we are baseball fans, and we're sports movie podcasters, so those two things are in our wheelhouse. And also, we've been covering a lot of racial-type movies the last few months, for sure, maybe the past year. This is maybe the ultimate race movie we could possibly cover, and we do release it on Jackie Robinson Day, which was a nice little symbiosis and a lucky break for us. Much like you are, I think I'm a lifelong baseball fan, and I enjoy the history of the game as much as anything else. So talking about some of these movies that we have done, like the Black Sox scandal movie, Eight Men Out... Anything that involves a luminary of the game is always a fun discussion to have. I think we're both stats aficionados, amongst other things, too. True. I've got some stats we'll talk about through the podcast here. And it is the sport we've covered the most so far, baseball. We'll cover it a lot more often because I've got a list of potentials we could cover for every sport. And some are very few left that we should or maybe even want to cover. But baseball, there are still dozens. And I'm not even talking the trash movies. There's still so many we could get into. So what are you drinking over there to pair with 42? Whatever I grabbed from the front of my fridge, which appears to be a triple berry sour beer. All right. It would be totally out of character for me if I drank anything that wasn't just loaded with some sort of berry or fruit at this stage. So I'm just <laughs> going to lean into it and just go with it. Well done. I've got the CC and Coke. Actually, just regular Coke, which are being boycotted right now for racial reasons in Atlanta. Look at all these tie-ins here. If they haven't been boycotted the day that we record this podcast... Two weeks later, they surely will be because Atlanta is facing some serious repercussions for their voting rights situation. Wow, all these things are tying in together because race in America never seems to end. The problem of it never seems to end. Canada's not exactly clean in this area themselves, but America especially. Well, I'll do my nutshell right now since I'm talking about it. So 42 in a nutshell, as it's become painfully obvious the past few years, America still has a long way to go with race relations. Although they and us here in Canada are 
ahead of many older countries who had the experience of their own racism for many years. In some ways, our two countries are ahead of those. We should know better. They should have known better. But the point is, America and Canada have a long way to go. I don't think anybody's arguing that we've reached the point of total racial harmony. Is Coke in hot water somehow, or was that just a voting rights thing, generally speaking? They're in Atlanta. Yeah. So Tyler Perry's film studio, the Atlanta Braves, the Atlanta Hawks, the basketball team, is that what they're called, right? I think so. Probably the Atlanta Falcons in a few months when they get going again. We'll all be facing this pressure. Okay, let me set up 42 here for us. So it was released by Warner Brothers on April 12th, 2013. It was number one at the box office that weekend in mid-April, and then went on to make more than double its budget. So all in all, 42 was a success. The critics even liked it. 81% of them on Rotten Tomatoes said, A-OK. The average was around 6.9. 85% of audiences on Rotten Tomatoes also liked it. It was 37th at the 2013 U.S. box office grudge match. The Stallone De Niro boxing movie was 92nd. And the Ron Howard race movie Rush, which is actually very well loved online, but didn't actually draw on the crowds, was 96th. And maybe one day those will get covered by us, but probably not for a few years. Maybe we'll wait till 2023 when they're 10 years old. But this movie was urgent because we actually can release a podcast on a day. It's very specific. Love that opening day for Hardball. Like you said, that's the day after we record this podcast. And now we release this one on Jackie Robinson Day, which has been happening since 2004. Every year they have Jackie Robinson Day. His first game with the Dodgers was April 15th, 1947. So that's, I guess, why they picked that specific day. I assumed it was his birthday or something like that. But no, that's why they picked that day. All right, well, I've seen 42 twice now in the theater, and now this time. I think you've seen it probably twice yourself. That's right, yeah. And by the way, for those who don't know, he's got Larry Doby as his background picture tonight on Zoom. Nice touch. The first black American League player. Jackie was the first black National League player. Although there's also this thing online about how there were black players in the 1800s. So really, if you look online, Wikipedia even says it. the first modern black player is Jackie Robinson. Okay, so your thoughts on 42. You might have put it as well as I could when we were talking before we started the podcast in that this is as safe an attempt to tell this story as I can possibly imagine. In some respects, I feel like that's to the detriment of the movie because it leans just so heavily, rightfully so, it's the crux of the movie, is Jackie Robinson's trials and trying to become the first integrated player in the modern major leagues. But there's so little else to this movie beyond when Chadwick Boseman is on the screen that if he's not in the midst of one of those trials, if he's not currently facing some form of abuse, then the movie felt like it floundered a little bit to me. Harrison Ford 100% gets second billing in this movie, and he's in it, if anything, maybe more than Chadwick Boseman is as Branch Rickey. But even his character isn't given a lot of depth beyond one small conversation with Jackie Robinson when Jackie asks why did you really bring me here and even that story felt like a little bit of nonsense you helped me love my game again no if you ask the real branch Ricky in a candid moment he'll probably tell you we needed good players we couldn't find any white ones so we went to the Negro Leagues he's making the money sign with his hands (laughs) that motion means the money because it's a capitalist enterprise he does admit that I like that touch actually it's one of those okay reasons but branch does admit that twice First with his assistants early in the movie before he even knows Jackie Robinson. Well, he knows about him, but he hasn't met him yet. Hasn't had him play for the Dodgers yet. And then he tells Jackie the same thing. He says to the assistants about how dollars aren't black and white. They're green. Okay, I guess whatever it takes, but really. But he actually has the same basic conversation with Jackie later on. 
I don't know how Jackie Robinson felt about that. Maybe he felt the same basic thing, which is I want to make money at this game. I love playing yeah. it. But in the end, if I can't make a living for my family, then what is really the point? I don't know if any of them really knew how important this would be long term. Truly, they probably did. But who can really say? Bev and I have talked about that before in other movies about how people in some historical movies will always know exactly how big this moment is and how big that moment is. And oh, my God, that moment when most of us in our lives like in Field of Dreams, Burt Lancaster's character. Most of us don't realize how significant these moments are until they've already happened. Jackie probably knew. Branch probably knew. But when it comes down to money, it's what I've said to Bev, too, in our podcast about how if we're ever going to fix the climate crisis and it comes down to somebody figures out how to fix this and they make a trillion, seven trillion dollars, and that's why they did it, fine, whatever it takes to fix the problem. So if that was Branch Rickey's reasoning, he wants to get Jackie Robinson the next year, Roy Campanella, who became, as you learned not long ago in one of our trivia contests, a three-time MVP in the span of about five years for the Dodgers the next decade in the 50s. And then also other great players along the line. Don Newcomb, I think, was a black player. They show him, I think, in that I picture so, at the end. Yeah. If that's why Branch Rickey did it, okay. Whatever it takes, I guess, to make this better. Because the nutshell of this movie also is just, let's not make our team better. We like the white players who aren't as good as the black players. I can't have a good team. I'd rather be mediocre. They get Jackie Robinson, and then over and over, this team makes the World Series. They made the series the year he debuted in 47, 49. 52, 53, 55, and 56. They finally won Brooklyn's first ever World Series in 1955. And only. After all those years of losing to the Yankees. And I think they made the World Series before Jackie Bezerra, a few times maybe. But they had this run where they were there almost all the time, like the Yankees were so often in the Gehrig and Mantle years. And then the National League teams that made the series when the Dodgers didn't were a whole mixture. It wasn't like it was the Dodgers or the Cardinals, who were also a dominant team. The Cardinals started getting a little bit crappy not long after this time frame. But the teams that made the series when the Dodgers did in that time frame from 48 to the mid-50s were the Braves, as in Boston Braves. Eventually, they became Atlanta. The Phillies, the Giants a few times. So the Dodgers were the Yankees of the National League. And it isn't just him, because Duke Snyder came along, Roy Campanella came along, Don Newcomb came along. But obviously, it's because of Jackie Robinson to a huge degree. Of course, Pee Wee Reese as well, and other good players. But this guy simply made their team better. That should be enough for anybody who cares about the business or the sport or whatever we're talking about right there. We got better. Fine. Whatever it takes. I agree with you, but that's easy to say from the lens of a 2021 sports fan perspective. That's true. And I don't even know if it was an intended little subtlety in this movie, but one of the things it did do well was try to highlight some of the illogic of the kind of stances that people would take about racism, right? And you had the Ben Chapman manager of the Phillies character who just rips Jackie Robinson apart and says, oh, you can't play ball. But contrast that to the announcer character who said black athletes would have an unfair advantage over white athletes because they have longer heel bones and it makes them unfairly fast. And then, of course, Jackie Robinson hits a home run and the other writer says, was that his heel bone that helped him do that? So it's a cute <laughs> moment, but it shows. Prejudice is baseless and factless, and it's just entirely dependent on your own imaginings and stereotypes as much as anything. Both these people have the same prejudice, but one feels like the black athletes would have an unfair advantage. The other feels like the black athletes just can't play. I agree with you. It makes no sense. And that's why I think in this movie, and this is one of the problems I had with it, frankly, you do see all the owner and management and coach characters who simply want to win, who simply want to make money, 
are the ones that are most willing to accept Jackie up front because he does make their team better and that does lead to success, leads to profit and all of that. And I personally have no problem with that. All of the more inclusive changes we hope to see in society going forward, I don't think any of that can happen in its entirety based on selfless and moral motivations. There's always going to be an element of greed in it. And if that leads to some good, then fine. There's a nice touch, too, because when all the players seem to be on his side toward the end of the season and they all seem to be given a standing ovation when he hits a home run or something at the end, because the movie ends as they're about to reach the World Series against the Yankees. We don't see any of that. We don't see any future games. It's just entirely this, well, I guess the 45 season to some degree, the 46 minor league season he plays with Montreal, where apparently they loved him, which is cool that we were that nice to him because, again, we're not exactly perfect in this area either. But there's a good touch where there's one of the players still sitting on the bench with that look on his face. It's not subtle. Nothing about this movie is subtle. But that's important because you got to show that not everybody was won over because that'll never happen no matter how logical this is or fair something might be or what have you in our society where people say, let's be better to whatever the group is, in this case, black people. There's always going to be a holdout who won't go along. There's some people that will never change their point of view, unfortunately, for better, but most often worse. And it's one of the things that has always driven me crazy about the media and about the way they portray anybody, most notably politicians, but anybody up to and including athletes as well. The second that somebody changes their opinion on a stance, they are pilloried for it because you aren't a man of principle. Well, no, I just learned new things. I was exposed to new ideas and new information, and thus my opinions of it evolved and changed. May I pipe up with a very funny quote from a very funny movie? Yeah, please. New shit has come to light. Yeah. Man. (laughs) The Big Lebowski. (laughs) You're not privy to all the new shit. I can forgive... um, I'm trying to be super careful with what I say in this podcast because I don't want to inadvertently say anything, of course, that's unintentionally insulting to anybody or hurtful. I can understand, if not forgive, somebody's biased opinions if they've had no exposure to anything other than one point of view their entire existence. And I think that's part of what we were shown in this movie. Players like Pee Wee Reese, who had no exposure to the African-American community of America, no exposure to what it was like to be a part of that community in that era of America. And then he gets a single letter and struggles with it, ultimately comes to, I think, the correct point of view to the point where he invites his family to see a game. It was in Cincinnati, right? And his family said it was from Louisville so that they could see who he was when he embraced Jackie Robinson and all of that, right? That, I thought, was a good example of a man who even if he wasn't outwardly bigoted at any point in this movie, at least felt uncomfortable with the notion of an integrated baseball league at first, but then came around to it once he realized, hey, it's just another guy, and all of these things that you hear in the South make no sense to me, so let's just play ball. Who knows if the real P.B. Reese was this fair, but there are shots of him online, because if you Google Jackie Robinson, P.B. Reese hug or arm around shoulder or anything like that which is maybe the big moment in this whole movie that whole scene which we'll talk about in a second what you see online is not well if they show you the movie of course you'll see Chadwick Boseman and Lucas Black in that scene if it's not that it's the two of them the real guys behind the scenes and Jackie seems to have a real smile on his face it's not one of those yeah you have to smile to be nice so he and Pee Wee probably did get along or maybe Jackie's just a great actor but I'm guessing the thing with Pee Wee Reese is also a realization that He's going to make us better. He's on the team. I can't stop this. Because he and DeRocher, the manager at the time, Leo DeRocher, who got suspended for his lascivious ways, he did come back the next year, by the way, but didn't last long. He didn't keep coaching the Dodgers or managing the Dodgers. 
long into the next season. I didn't see exactly why, but I think he got fired. DeRocher was a winner, though. You look at his career with all kinds of teams, including the Cubs in the 60s. He was a winning manager and a Hall of Fame manager as well. But he and Reese are against this whole petition early on that most of the players seem to sign. I'm not going to play with that. They didn't really say it. That word isn't really thrown around in this movie as much as it maybe could have been or even should have been, to be truly honest. But all the white players, or most of them, don't want to play with him. Pee-wee seems to have the same... Well, DeRocher actually is against this idea because he even says on the phone, if he's a zebra, wherever the line is, I'll play him and he's going to help us win. Pee-wee's more a matter of hands-off, whatever. Maybe that wasn't the real Pee-wee, but in the movie, that's how it's portrayed. Brian Helgeland wrote and directed this movie. He won an Oscar for L.A. Confidential, excellent crime film. He co-wrote with the director, Curtis Hansen. But the way that scene plays out does feel like it could have happened that way. But the way the father and the son, oh my God, we're going to watch this great game. How many runs will, I think it was Pee Wee, score today? I don't know, three runs. And then they see Jackie and this nice father goes right into the, get out of here, N-word. And the kid joins in. Then he sees Pee-wee and Jackie with their arms around each other, or at least Pee-wee with his arm around Jackie. Because Jackie, I like the way Chadwick Boseman plays this, which is, yeah, sure thing, Pee-wee. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is fine. <laughs> Jackie isn't completely just buying into this thing. I think he probably trusts Pee-wee, but also there's this element, and there should be, of not entirely trusting the moment. Yeah. Then they show the wide shot, and he says the whole thing about how my family's up there, they need to know. That could have happened. Apparently, there was a person on this team that did say the line about how one day we'll all wear 42. Gene Hermansky, who's mentioned once or twice in this film, actually apparently said that in 1947. Talk about foresight. What a strange thing for somebody to say all those years ago, and who knew that would ever happen with any player because the number's been retired in the whole league since 1997, and the last one to ever wear it was Mariano Rivera. But what did you think of that big scene? Because this is a great example of what Helgeland does right and wrong. I like this movie. If I didn't say this already, I like the movie. But here's what's frustrating about it. It's a sledgehammer film. It is. And that's not the end of the world. It isn't a long movie. It probably should have been a miniseries, really. Jackie Robinson's life could have easily been a four-part, one-hour-each miniseries rather than a two-hour movie. But the whole thing with the father and the son, that kind of thing probably happens with the kid. Maybe he was never racist until that moment. Yeah, get out of here. Oh, that's right. The kid does say the N-word because his does. father does. And then when he sees the arm around the shoulder, he has that look on his face like, oh, well, I was wrong. And that's part of the problem with the film is that that's maybe the way people would have reacted in reality. And they probably did sometimes, although bona fide racists probably don't ever feel guilty for saying the things they say or feeling the way they feel. But it's a touching scene in some ways. And it's also one of those, oh, my God, has it got to go down that way? Also, why wasn't this movie made? And this was 2013. If it was made now, this probably wouldn't be the case. But why wasn't it made by a black person? Brian Helgeland, I've seen him. He's whiter than you and me. I'm all for being colorblind when it comes to an artist's desire to make whatever they want. And if it's a white man that wants to tell this story, I understand what you're saying. And you would hope there would be some input from somebody from the Robinson family that might have a good understanding of what that was like for Jackie. The first thing you said, which I think is absolutely true, is that this story would be better served in the form of a miniseries rather than a movie. And I think it's because of that that you get this sledgehammer effect. Part of it does lead you down the path of, oh, this is kind of a nice scene, and oh, really? It feels so fast that a kid would go from mimicking his dad to literally minutes later going, oh, I was wrong about that. I 100% buy into the fact that children are a little bit more malleable in their viewpoints, just as they haven't been inundated with the same amount of information yet. But that scene was a good example of that. Branch Ricky telling Jackie, 
weeks into Jackie's career in the big leads that white children were already emulating him just felt like already I don't know about that because Jackie was a good rookie player but he wasn't the greatest player in the bigs by any stretch of the imagination at that point point. and if you're a child do you really care about the racial implications of integrated baseball at that stage I don't know if I'm with you on that either they hated him because he's black because they learned that already or they didn't really realize that because they weren't taught racism as we know you don't get born with racism you learn it but if they like a baseball player, if they're a big fan, they're going to emulate him no matter what he looks like. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is at this stage in Jackie's career, he wasn't anywhere near the biggest and best player in the league yet. So if you're telling me that he had eclipsed Joe DiMaggio in New York as far as the person that kids were emulating, I don't know if I'd buy that. I have two words plus a junior. Fernando Tatis Jr. Mike Trout is the best player in the league and has been for about a decade. Mm -hmm. But... Tatis is already getting all kinds of people on his side. And I bet a lot of kids who love baseball are emulating him. And he's barely even played a full... I don't think he has played technically a full season yet in terms of total games. So he could be the Jackie Robinson in this sense. Yeah, I don't know if that's entirely a one-to-one -one comparable, though, because I think a lot of what benefits Fernando Tatis in this day and age is modern media. And he's a highlight clip machine. Whereas, while I can appreciate that it would have been a media circus around Jackie Robinson, as far as I understand, media in this era would have been game recaps or maybe some op-eds by sports writers that were decrying racial integration and things like that. It struck me as one of those rushed elements of the story just done for the constraints of a two-hour-long runtime, essentially. It's a rushed movie. There's no doubt about that. They cram a lot in in about two hours, including a romance between him and his wife. Nicole Bahari does a pretty good job playing Rachel. They seem like they're in love. She was actually in The Express with him, which I think was his first movie. They don't share any scenes together. I like their relationship, but they don't have much screen time together after the first 20 or 30 minutes. You see her quite a bit, but she's really not in any scenes with him that really, truly matter. Although the movie does end with him coming back to hug her on the streets of Brooklyn after a big game. So they want to bring it back to that in the end. Yeah. But that's another thing that probably should have been given more time. After he died in 72, he was only 53. I'm guessing that what he experienced through all this time was a contributing factor to that in a very big way. The stress that can make your health worse and all that kind of thing. But she was a civil rights pioneer for many years, so she outlived him by a long time. Not that a miniseries or a movie should be about Rachel Robinson either, but her contributions, and apparently they had a kid together, well, we see that in the movie too, don't we? Yeah. Could have been at least an element more than it really was. It's almost glossed over. Okay, he got married and he has a kid. And then we're back to baseball. But it is a baseball movie. There's quite a bit of baseball in it. There's so many elements of Jackie's story that get cut out. One of them you just talked about is his relationship with his wife. And we get the barest hint of it when Branch Rookie shows Pee Wee Reese the folders and folders and folders of hateful, threatening letters that are being sent to the Brooklyn Dodgers attacking Jackie Robinson. There has to be a personal life toll that that takes on you as a player, that that takes on your family. And we got that more so in Glory Road than we did here. If anything, it's got to be more prevalent in Jackie Robinson's stories. It just has to be, given all the circumstances that he had encountered. And likewise, everything that went into him making an appearance in the big leagues was so quickly glossed over. You're made to think that it's basically Branch Rickey sitting around a table with two or three scouts or coaches or members of the Brooklyn Dodgers looking at names and deciding, yeah, 20 minutes later, that's our guy, let's go get him. This is decades in the making, and we don't get any sense of that at all. In fact, one of the reasons why I had Larry Doby on my screen when we started recording here was because, I think his name was Veek, the owner of the Cleveland Oh, franchise. Bill Beck? Beck, thank you, yeah. He tried for decades before Jackie Robinson 
came into the league to bring in an African-American player into the leagues and was time and time again kiboshed by Mountain Landis when he was commissioner. We've talked about Landis before. The guy was just a raging bigot. When Happy Chandler, I think his name was, right, the commissioner we see in this movie, took over that office, he gave interviews where he said as much, that he had access to the commissioner's files. He saw all the times that Vec was the first guy to try it, but it happened multiple times, and Landis just kept stopping it, not because there was any rule against integration. It was simply that unspoken racist belief that black players had no place in Major League Baseball, and Landis made it his mission to stop it until he ultimately died in the 40s. It's a kind of a refreshing experience to get a guy like Chandler on the scene who, through his own experiences, and again, this sort of comes back to the belief that people have to be able to evolve and change their perceptions based on experience, because what Chandler always said when he was commissioner is, in the war, he saw white Americans fight side by side with African Americans. They fought equally bravely for their country, so who was he to come back home and then say, you can lay down your life for me, but you can't play baseball for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for having a little bit of a rational thought process about it. So up to and including the point where Branch Rickey effectively told Chandler, I'm going to bring in Jackie Robinson, there was a lot of drama that went into that. Granted, it had nothing to do with Jackie, but I think it's a tale that would have been worth telling in this movie, just because it adds that much more importance to Jackie Robinson's success if you know that it's been decades in the fight just to get to that point. There are 16 teams in the majors at this point, 15 of the owners voted against allowing Jackie Robinson to play baseball. Branch Rickey said, I'm going to do it anyway, and the commissioner was fine with it, so they went ahead with it. But again, there were so many forces against this succeeding that you don't really get a sense of going into this movie. But you can't tell that in two hours. You need to have four, five, six hours to really give that story room to breathe. I did not know this was true, and maybe this isn't true. But I read this article last year. It feels right to me. Howard Bryant on ESPN wrote a pretty long article. I think it was last year during the Black Lives Matter protests when they really got big in the summer. And he talked about how baseball always was, and probably still is, a regional, southern, and I think he said racist game. I had never thought of that before. Okay, yeah, you were talking about this era, sure, obviously. But then as the years went on, and Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella... And on and on, Barry Bonds eventually, Bobby Bonds, his father, got to be superstar players, Frank Robinson. All these guys, or most of the guys you just mentioned, are Hall of Fame talents and some of the greatest players who ever lived. I'm not saying it wasn't racist. I'm not saying that was all just gone. It's washed away. Oh, racism's over because we have black players now. But it just didn't feel like it was that succinct, the way that Bryant wrote it. I should forward the article to you, though, because it's worth reading. It was really interesting and heartbreaking as well, because you think it's one thing to be this way ever. But then you see, okay, they can play. You mentioned the Chapman thing about how you can't play here. That's what he's saying as a dog on Jackie. But what he really means, of course, is you don't belong here. I don't care if you can play. He probably, if he were to actually be fully honest with his God or with anyone else, would say, yeah, he's probably really good. If he made this team after all this, he's probably really good. I don't care. I don't want him here. He doesn't belong here. So when Bryant talks about how the game was always regional, Southern, and then as a default, racist, not just Southern people are racist, of course, we know that. I hadn't really thought of that before. But then Gary Sheffield said quite a few years ago about how, yeah, there are a lot of black players in baseball, but they're not necessarily African-American. So many of them, and this is true, are Caribbean. They're from Dominican or they're from anywhere south of the border. They're not actually American players. I think the actual African-American 
contingent in baseball is less than 10%, maybe even quite a bit less than 10%, because so many of the people that you see who look like black guys, well, they are black, but they're not American players. So after all this time and all the people I just mentioned who became superstars in the sport, led by Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella and Larry Doby from way back when, the game changed. It got better this way, but not nearly as much as it should have, even to this day. There's a lot to take in from that kind of statement in the abstract. And having not read the article, I don't want to rag on it too much. And I wouldn't at all if it's looking at it from a historic perspective. I don't know where the game is right now in terms of relative equality. We've talked at various points about, in fact, some of the Blue Jays players getting in trouble for being caught on mic making not racial slurs, but either homophobic slurs or I think in one case it was an anti-Semitic slur. We know that sport is not necessarily the most politically correct culture in the world, and that was taken to an extreme in this movie. And I'll jump in by saying that I think athletes to this moment right now, and they're probably better than they ever were before, are assholes. Yeah, it could be. They're probably slagging on their own teammates, but also certainly on the opposition. Maybe it isn't such the default of calling them the F word, meaning gay slur, or the N word, or any of those other things like it used to be. But I guarantee you that locker rooms are not that different than they were 50, 60, 70 years ago. If anything, there's aspects of it that are worse now because of the culture in which a lot of these athletes are raised. If you're superior, and I mean just truly superior at a sport, once you start hitting teenage years in America, you're pretty much groomed at that point to get to college sports, to get to the bigs if you can. And I'm talking if you're the cream of the crop. But that means from the point of being a teenager, and I think we talked about this in some of the basketball movies in particular, everything is handed to you on a plate. You're the golden goose. So everybody just tells you you're the best there ever was. And you don't learn humility. You don't necessarily learn people skills. You don't necessarily develop the most healthy relationships in the world. And I think that carries over when you describe some professional athletes as assholes, maybe more so than the population at large. I think there's a distinct possibility that plays a role in it. But what I was going to say about the racist aspect of the sport is I also don't necessarily think that representation of a group in terms of like, is this proportional to the representation of that group in the country? That doesn't necessarily have to be indicative of the sport itself being racist or not, because I think one thing we do see now more than ever, or has become a topic of conversation more than ever, where do you see yourself in media? And if you have historically not seen yourself represented in baseball, then I think you're less inclined to play that sport. If you see yourself represented more in basketball or football, that's probably the sport you want to play because those are your idols now. And baseball more so than sports like football, more so than sports, historically anyway, than basketball, than hockey, is an international game. And you just referenced it, right? Cuban players, Dominican players, players from Mexico and South and Central America and the Caribbean in general. And now we're seeing Asia, Korean and Japanese players. There is a huge international representation in baseball that is going to shrink the white demographic and will shrink the African-American demographic just by virtue of more international players coming in. And yes, the historic racist aspect of baseball 100% plays a part in this because, again, if you're a young black child and you don't see yourself in any of those baseball players, maybe you're not interested in the game, so you don't play it. It has roots, for sure. I just don't know to what extent that represents 2021 baseball. I don't want to sound like I'm 100% defending the game. I just think there's an element of it in all sports, and I don't know if baseball is any more guilty or less guilty than others. I think it's pervasive in all sports. I think what we saw last year when Black Lives Matter was at its peak, baseball did some of this stuff. Basketball certainly did. 
I don't blame the players at all, in general at least. Certainly not the black players. But it felt like the leagues, the teams, it was performative. The yeah. CBC where I work, it's performative. Let's make a difference. Why didn't you do this 10 years ago, 20 years ago? You're only doing this because you're being pressured to do it now. I don't believe this is sincere. It's really going to come into a play if we see real change long-term. Hollywood seems to be making some changes long-term because let's get into this now. Chadwick Boseman, we barely mentioned his name, as Jackie Robinson. We covered him on draft day, played a fictional character, but a very good performance as Vontae Mack, the linebacker. But he played a lot of real-life characters in his short career. He also played James Brown. Thurgood Marshall, the Supreme Court Justice. T'Challa is not real life, but iconic. Of course, he played him multiple times in the Marvel movies. And now this year, he's the front runner for the Oscar, which will be on April 25th for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom as a star in that movie. I'm not a huge fan of the film. This is going to be one of those, oh, shit, he died. Let's make sure to reward him now type Oscars. Not like it's a bad choice. It's just not, I would say, the best performance of the year. But just like Jackie Robinson, Chadwick Boseman had a short but excellent career. Yeah. Jackie didn't play that long in the major leagues. He played long enough to be a Hall of Famer. He played 10 years. Jackie was a rookie of the year. He won an MVP in 1949. He won a batting title that same year. Led the league in many categories of the years. Great bunter, fast, versatile. And it's funny that all those things are true about him because Chadwick Boseman fits that same bill. For him to be able to play a singer, James Brown, a Supreme Court justice, multiple athletes, like I said, the Express, a football player in draft day, Although most of that's not playing football, but he's supposed to be a football player. Baseball player here, a lot of baseball scenes for him in this. And then a superhero, that's a pretty great career in a short period of time. And then we haven't really sworn much in this podcast. Maybe this isn't R-rated at this point, so I'll just censor myself by saying <laughs> to cancer, F you yeah. for taking this great talent at such a young age. But anyway, he's probably going to win the Oscar as a bit of a career achievement award, as a bit of a sympathy win. But I think he's quite good as Jackie and maybe great casting, actually, because he was still fairly new to Hollywood and yet got cast in this pretty major role. I assume you liked him in this role, right? Oh, yeah, I did, actually. And I can't ever think of a negative word being spoken about Chadwick Boseman, unlike many actors and many athletes. And I don't know why that came to mind, actually, while I was watching this movie. I think I was just thinking about athletes generally, particularly when we saw Leo get... Leo DeRocher, yeah. DeRocher, yeah. He got suspended for moral reasons, right? Because he was accused of stealing a man's wife out from under him, as if the wife in that circumstance has no free will. Right. Imagine in 2021, or even go back 20 years, and try to imagine somebody being suspended because somebody found out that they were having an affair with another person's spouse. It's so insane. The closest thing I could come up with in modern sport, I guess, is maybe the drug policy and that we're moralizing about whether it's right or wrong for somebody to take performance-enhancing drugs. What do I think about athletes? Do I care about whether they're good or bad people, or do I just want them to be able to play the sport well? I might not root for them as much if they're a bad person, and I think about people like Barry Bonds. I think about people like the Houston Astros, particularly when George Springer signed with the Toronto Blue Jays. But if they're a good player, they're a good player. They shouldn't be suspended for moral reasons, is what I was thinking. And then I'm thinking Chadwick Boseman. He's one of those people that everybody just universally had good things to say about. Beyond reproach, it seems to be. I've not seen his entire filmography by any stretch, but every single thing I've ever seen Chadwick Boseman in, he was good, including this. I thought he did a great job of portraying the struggle that Jackie would have had to just bottle up the rage that he must have felt. To take it and take it yeah. and take it and take it. Yeah. So for my money, Chadwick Boseman was the best thing about this movie. Before we recorded this, we were talking and my recollection of 
and I mean like a few weeks ago we were talking and my recollection of Harrison Ford was that he hammed the heck up out of this movie and I think it was he does yeah but not nearly as much as I thought he did I was curious whether this was just Ford putting on like a real gravitasic voice but if you look up videos of later stage Branch Rickey he had that deep gravelly voice all right Presumably because the character was always carrying cigars, so I assume Branch Rickey was a heavy smoker. I give Ford some credit. He put up a pretty solid performance, and I think I was unfairly harsh on him in the past. This is one of his better later career performances, actually. I would say it's eight years ago now. It's also the only sports film he's ever been in. I look through, unless I miss something. This is the only time he's ever been in a sports movie, so if we ever cover him, we're really going to have to branch out and do something different. And it's also the rare real person he's ever played. He's one of those actors that doesn't play real-life characters the way that so many other actors do. I can't believe you just blew by that without comment. What? We would have to branch out ah. if we ever cover any more Harrison Ford. <laughs> For the man that just played Branch Ricky. Which is his actual name, by the way, according to the Wikipedia entry. He's Branch Ricky. Maybe it's his middle name, but regardless, Branch is somewhere in his name. The role was intended for Robert Redford, by the way, which would have been a fun connection to The Natural. And he would have been good casting, been good too, too. But I was glad that Ford did it because it isn't the usual role for him. And he hasn't had, apart from some of the cameos in the Star Wars movies, well, the main role, I guess, in The Force Awakens. But he hasn't done that much the last few years that people, well, many years now, that people have really talked about. One of the early scenes in this movie that had me raising my Spockian eyebrow, I would love to have a candid conversation with the director just to know what is an intended sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge commentary and what just happens to be a piece of script that maybe I was reading too much into as a viewer. But there's a scene where, actually the scene, where they're picking the player they're going to try to bring into the league and they ultimately land on Jackie Robinson. And one of the reasons that Branch Rickey cites for bringing him in, aside from his competitiveness and not being able to back down or put up with bigotry in his military career, is the fact that he's a Methodist. <laughs> yep. He's a Methodist. I'm a Methodist. That means he's a good man. What if he was not even atheist? What if he was Roman Catholic or something? Then he would no longer be a good person and therefore Branch Rickey would no longer be willing to take a risk on him? despite every other aspect of his personality that Branch Rickey was in favor of? It wouldn't have helped. That's definitely a strike against him, I think. He mentioned how Satchel Page is too old, and also as a pitcher, not even an everyday player. Guys pitch more back then than they do now, but it's a different story if you're a starting pitcher. You're not as much a focal part of the team. You can't play every game or nearly every game. And they also mentioned about Campanella, and apparently he was too soft, although he came in soon after and, as we said, got to be a multiple-time MVP in a key position like catcher. The guy who probably should have been the first player to ever play in the major leagues around the same time frame was Josh Gibson. Maybe the greatest player who ever lived overall in every way, especially considering he was also a catcher. Some people say he hit more home runs than Babe Ruth in those barnstorming games that the Negro League players played, or not even necessarily Negro League, but when they just played games against pros or this or that. He was a phenomenal baseball player. Not that Jackie Robinson and these other guys weren't, but Josh Gibson was even more so a superstar kind of player. But I'm guessing that Branch Rickey must have done a lot of work on this. Like you said, for years, it wasn't just a matter of months or even a year. This is years. So if Josh Gibson, Sacho Page, Roy Campanella, and probably 50 or even 100 other people were in some kind of shortlist, then you get down to, okay, what is my little thing? And if you share that kind of background of religious fervor, that probably would put it over the top. I can see that. And also, as Jackie Robinson says to Branch when he meets him, he played against white players. And I'm not sure that's true about all the other ones because Jackie did it when he was, 
what was it in the service or something like that and he was in the service too so he has dealt with white people more than a lot of the other negro league players maybe would have and would have had to learn to turn the other cheek way back when because this isn't about having the guts to fight back it's about having the guts not to fight back i'm not a fighter so i can't say i would actually run at somebody but oh my god tip my hat to somebody who cannot lunge at somebody for saying some of the things that they all did Obviously, it's encapsulated in Ben Chapman in this movie, but you have to know that it was everywhere, even in Brooklyn, his home team and his home fans seem to love him. I was reading, I don't know who voted on this, the most popular man in America in 1947 was Bing Crosby. Number two, Jackie Robinson. Just to close off my thought on that, I understand what you're saying. You're probably right. It was such a prominent moment in this movie when he said that. The de facto reason for bringing Jackie in, because he's a Methodist, is the writer or the director. Are they wink, wink, nudge, nudging, saying this movie's about race and discrimination based on race? But hey, guys, how is religion different? And all of the strife that we see because of varying sects or various religions and all that. Maybe that's me overthinking it. I don't know. What you just said about the second most popular man in America in 1947 being Jackie Robinson makes perfect sense to me. Because I think at heart, the majority of people are willing to accept anybody once they get to know them. Okay. The ones that are the hardcore racists or the hardcore iconoclasts who will not accept you regardless of any reasons. They're a small number, but they tend to be the most zealous. They tend to be the loudest. I'm not speaking about this just race issues. I'm talking about any issue. The right. vocal minority tends to be the ones that get all the attention because they're vocal. So the majority of the people who are just sitting back kind of in the way that Branch Rickey's describing in his younger years where he played with an African-American catcher who was done poorly. And Branch Rickey said, you know, I tell myself I did my best, but I didn't. I just sat back. Branch Rickey himself accepted the guy. He said he was a good player. He was a good man. And I just let it happen. I think that's true of most people. Well, you hear it now since Black Lives Matter last year as a big credo. There's a lot of credos these days, but silence is violence. I was talking to Bev about this recently. There's a guy I work with who I don't think met this racistly, if that's a word, at all. He was quoting South Park. He's a mixed race guy. He's got native blood, native Canadian blood, okay. but he looks white. And he would just out of nowhere, when I would see him say, white power, because that's what they do in South Park. I forget what the episode was, but they did that at one point. He was just trying to be funny. He knows I'm a South Park fan too. I haven't heard him do that in a long time, but if I do hear that next time, I think at the very least I'm going to pipe up and say, dude, don't do that anymore. That was never cool or really all that funny. Just randomly say it for no reason. And I don't think he meant it the way that people will hear this and probably say, yes, he did. But you don't know him. I don't think he meant it that way. But I don't think I'll be silent about that. If I see somebody ever, and I don't think I ever have, but being accosted in the street by somebody or called names or what have you, I'd be way more likely to pipe up than I ever was before. This is what I think woke is. This whole thing about woke, 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 woke. You hear it all the time now. I think people misuse that non-word. It's not even a properly grammatically used word. It should I am be awakened. awakened. Right, exactly. It's awakened. But I think if I were to see or hear this kind of thing, and whatever the context was, or the cliche would be the racist uncle or the parents at Christmas, if we ever see our family again, the way the virus has gone and still continues to go, I'd be less likely to keep my mouth shut than I was before and not do something. And that's where Branch Rickey obviously feels bad about too. So this movie, I think the year or maybe a couple years before the Black Lives Matter stuff really got started in, what was it, somewhere in St. Louis or Missouri, something happened in 2014 or 15, maybe 2014. So about a year after this movie came out, not to say that black people didn't deal with this all along, but it really became more of an issue for a while there during Obama's presidency and it just died down again. They did their best, but it didn't become an issue 
And now it has been for all this time since. It's been about a year, not that long from a year of George Floyd being murdered. As we record this, his trial is going on. I'm guessing Derek Chauvin will not go to jail because America, justice yeah. system. But more people who weren't awakened and weren't aware of these things are now. And a lot of them will at least speak out and do something. And it sounds like Branch Rickey, which is he'd been that person in the first place. I don't want it to come across as if I'm saying everybody should be a social crusader. Far from it. I think it's pretty much what you describe. I think if we all just took small steps to be less accepting of other people's careless turns of phrase or just casual hurtfulness, then it would be a big thing. It's kind of what you see in this movie with the Lucas Black character just demonstrating a small moment of camaraderie with Jackie Robinson on the field. In the movie, anyway, changing a young child's mind. I think that's the best way forward are these sort of small acts of kindness and acceptance displayed for everybody goes a long way rather than us sitting back saying, yeah, we're okay with it, but I don't feel like speaking up kind of thing. You know what I mean? At least reach one person. That's maybe the way this can be fixed one at a time kind of deal. I think I pointed this out before, but it certainly applies to this particular movie now in this podcast. I played on a team for many years and we always did a team pitcher at the end of the year. This was probably true the whole time I played on this team, but one year in particular, we got the team pitcher emailed to us and that was fine. I looked at it and thought, oh, apart from my friend Brad and there's a white girl and me, everybody else was not. It was black people and it was Asian people. I never even noticed until I saw the picture and just all of us right there in a line. That's when I finally noticed that, oh yeah, right. I'm vastly unnumbered. Oh, well, <laughs> I like to think that's a good sign. That was long before the stuff in Missouri in the mid 2000 teens and now the last year and so of Black Lives Matter really being a big issue. I don't have all the answers. I sure as hell haven't always done or said the right thing. But to have not even noticed that until I saw a picture, that's a pretty good sign. It wasn't like, oh, I'm outnumbered here, just me and one or two other people. I was almost proud of the fact that I played in a team that was so minority driven, good players, good people. That was the point. I liked them all, or most of them anyway. We were a good team. So I've got a long way to go. I know that. But that was a good moment for me to ever notice that. And that was quite a long time ago. It's always the ongoing journey of trying to be a better person, of course. But I think we are also spoiled, which is why movies like this at times, for me, are jarring in a culture shocky kind of way. Because I've lived my entire life in Toronto, and I know you've lived a good portion of yours. And it's a very densely populated and multicultural place which is not necessarily indicative of huge swaths of America, not indicative of huge swaths of Canada either. If you get outside the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area here, it becomes a much less diverse place. So I think we're both maybe a little blind to some of the issues that movies like this cover because we haven't personally experienced them in our lives. But again, I think we're a little insulated from some of these things. No scene exemplifies that more than Alan Tudyk's rant as Ben Chapman at Jackie Robinson in the box and man some movies use the n-word and things like that for shock value when you like you really need that not really we can get the point without it in this case I thought Tudyk's rant as hard as it was to listen to I got to imagine that Alan Tudyk couldn't have found it easy to deliver either I think Tudyk is supposed to be a pretty good guy but man it was effective they didn't overdo it it was tough to listen to but it made its purpose well felt. You understand the rage that Jackie must have felt being subjected to that once, never mind how many times must he have heard similar things in his career. It's encapsulated in the Chapman scene. Before I get to that though, there are two things that I'd actually taken note about because I saw the movie so long ago, I'd forgotten how this worked out, but two things you'd expect to happen to somebody like this, no matter what their controversy is, him being black is a huge deal, but if he had been gay, 
if he had been yeah. a wife beater, which I don't think they would have cared that much about, to be honest. But if he'd been something they didn't like, whatever it was, you think two things would happen in baseball. One, he'd get beaned early and often. They tried, And apparently. two, because he's a first baseman, he gets spiked a lot. Yeah. We don't see him get beaned until 100 minutes in the movie. And then I took a note and said, when's he ever going to get spiked? And then the first time he does is in late August, as portrayed in the movie. I'm sure it happened a lot. And it's Enos Country Slaughter for the St. Louis Cardinals. A, a big rival for them. And B, guessing by the nickname, not the most woke guy in the history of the world, even back in 1947. The movie probably didn't want to belabor the fact that he probably was thrown out a lot. He did lead the league in hit-by-pitches in 1948, not in 1947, according to what I saw, and then was hit 14 times in 1952, which doesn't have to mean they're aiming for him. If he crowds the plate, he's going to get hit more often. Right. But I just guess that somebody in this position that they don't like is going to be aimed at by pitchers with the baseball and then have to deal with people trying to jump on his ankle as a first baseman. A natural shortstop in the Negro Leagues... Eventually, mostly played second base. I think that was his main position. In fact, he ranks war and whatnot as one of the all-time great second basemen. But in this one season, and I think later on in his career as well, played mostly first base. But those things are portrayed later on, and they're obviously deliberate touches. The Chapman scene, one of the things I do appreciate about it, I don't know if you'd see this now, and I don't like that it would be different this way because it would feel dishonest, is that nobody wants, well, not nobody, very few people want to say that word. And I'm sure, like you said, Alan Tudyk didn't want to either. Seems like a good dude. And I wonder if maybe just like Richard Woodmark when he did No Way Out with Sidney Poitier back in 1950, apparently after every scene where Woodmark had to say that word over and over again, he'd apologize to Poitier. And I'm guessing at one point Sidney would just say, it's the movie, man. I get it. I'm guessing Tudyk maybe did the same thing with Chadwick Boseman and said, sorry, man. But he does say it a lot. And if he didn't say that, if he was saying black boy or any of those kinds of other things, which is bad enough, that would not be what Ben Chapman would have said. Right. Ben Chapman, later old Tudek, has that scene around where he says, we'll be we called DiMaggio, uh, was it a WAP, I guess? And you're Italian, so you're probably offended by that. Anyone probably should be. He goes through the list of things that they would say about people. And Chapman probably means that he's Jewish, I'm guessing. I think he mentions that. He does say that. Hank Greenberg. Yep. It's funny, too, because he is with the Philadelphia Phillies. They don't play the Tigers. They don't play the Yankees. Maybe he means as a league we do this. Not we, the Phillies, but we as a league will point out somebody's difference to try to get under their skin. That's what I took it to mean, yeah. So I'm not saying it's okay to go the racial route just because you say, well, we mock these other great players. And he does mention Hall of Fame caliber players, Greenberg and DiMaggio. An element of that could be argued to have been gamesmanship. But when you go that level, no, it's not. You're just trying to get under his skin. But one of the nice touches is that Eddie Stanky is the one who stands up, goes across the field, probably wouldn't have been allowed to do that I'm sure the umpire would have stopped him from going all the way across the field and getting in Chapman's face, standing up for his teammate. But then Jackie gets a hit, stolen base. The catcher throws the ball away on that stolen base. And then later on, Jackie scores around, which was Jackie's game. He was a stolen base guy. Not that he really right. stole that many bases, but he was irritating on the bases. He would drive people crazy. The one game we ever see him play in the Negro Leagues, he's doing that as well with the other black players. That was just the way he played the game. He stole home a lot, apparently, as well. The Tudyk scenes are effective, and I know that people don't want to hear that word anymore, and they shouldn't want to hear that word anymore, but if you do a movie like this in 2022, 2025, whatever it might be, and our culture is going to say, you can't even put that in a movie because we don't want to hear that anymore. If it's 1947 and it's about this era, about this topic, and no one's saying that word, to me that's dishonest because that's what Jackie Robinson would have faced, and then Campanella and the rest of them, over and over every day. I agree with you, and that's why I wanted to preface my statement by saying, in general, I don't appreciate using certain language gratuitously. Like I feel it should have a purpose, and in this case, it definitely does. And I'm not 
a fan of whitewashing history, either eliminating all references to people or to events because we don't agree with their politics or their stance anymore. Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. You should know who said that because you asked us that question very recently. Santayana. That's right. And if we totally eliminate the use of that language in all media, including movies like this that are trying to put a spotlight on the struggles of civil rights pioneers like Jackie Robinson, we just are going to forget how immense the struggle was and how horrific the treatment of certain people was. So I think it's important in this particular case for the purposes of honesty. And in terms of Ben Chapman's attitude, apparently he told multiple reporters over the years exactly what he told, I guess, the general manager in this movie about Hank Greenberg, about Joe DiMaggio and, and the slurs that he would sling and baseball players would sling at each other. And you're right, there's gamesmanship in sport, and there's a line you probably don't cross. But part of what that brought home to me as well is the fact that racism is a sliding scale and a constantly moving target as well. In this movie, we're talking specifically, of course, about African-American players, but you can easily forget that there was a period of time when Italians, and if you're ever interested, look up histories of New York City, because it's fascinating how the waves of immigration played out in that city. Irish were the bad guys at one time. To the point where these waves of immigrants from particular countries were not even considered quote-unquote white because they were too ethnic, right? Italians were not white within the definition of that, likewise the Irish. So it's funny that he defends himself by saying these things. You're not helping your cause, man. You're just proving that you're a bigot across the board. You're not just bigoted against African-Americans. You're just bigoted. You just hate everybody who's not Anglo-Saxon British descent, I guess. But apparently that was just the man. Poetic justice, Chapman's Phillies, not just this year, but for many years. Well, 1950, they got good. I'm not sure he was still the manager then, but oh, he around this no. time frame, the Phillies sucked. Yeah. So he was gaming somebody who was on a team that was way better than his was. And that year went on to go to the World Series. And that makes sense because how often do we see the people with the biggest mouths are often the ones with the little man Napoleonic syndrome, right? Except that you don't have the guns to back it up. Although apparently Ben Chapman's biggest gripe is that he felt like he was because of his reputation, because I guess this was a big event, not just in this movie, but in history. In the moment, this was a big event, what he did to Jackie Robinson, hence the famous picture of he and Robinson holding the bat, because Robinson's like, I don't want to touch you. But he believes he was blackballed from the Baseball Hall of Fame, which I think is way overstating his capabilities as a player. But Chapman does have the distinction of being the first player to get a hit in an All-Star game. The first Major League Baseball All-Star game was held in 1933, apparently, and he got the first hit in that game. So, oh, okay. little feather in this otherwise apparently horrible <laughs> human being's cap. Well, Tudyk does play him quite well. It's a fairly small role, but such a key role in this movie. He ends up being the chief antagonist. And I'm sure he's just an encapsulation of a lot of people that Jackie dealt with his entire oh, sure. career. Yeah. And certainly that first year. But in that scene where they have to take the picture for the media, and there's Jackie's idea to hold the bat between them, I was reading that he was bothered by that. It was actually Chapman that wouldn't shake his hand. So, fine, we'll share a bat and we'll play nice. Ben Chapman would not shake Jackie Robinson's hand? Yes, because in the movie they portray it that Chapman doesn't really want to necessarily, but it's Jackie's idea, we'll just share a bat then, which isn't a big deal. I wouldn't have thought twice about if I saw that picture, I wouldn't think that he wouldn't shake the guy's hand. It wouldn't stand out that way. It'd be like, well, they play baseball. They're holding a bat together. That makes sense. They're both baseball people. So nothing was solved there, obviously. Yeah. yeah. It's just going to show. But this is also 1947. You might see this kind of thing now, except I guess the biggest difference is people more often keep their mouths shut. Or they do feel like they're outnumbered. 
I don't like whoever the group is, Mexicans, black people, gay people, women, whatever it is, and they don't say anything about it because they know they'll probably be outnumbered. They should realize then that they're wrong. If they feel that outnumbered, then maybe you're the one who's wrong, possibly. <laughs> if you're Donald Trump, never. No, he cannot be wrong. But yeah, Tudyk is strong in a very small role. Andre Holland, we haven't said him at all yet. He plays the reporter. He's very good. Who's tagging yeah. along with Jackie. And he's one of the important players in this movie because early on, he has more scenes early on, just like Nicole Bahari does than she does later on. But when he gets Jackie out of Florida, where he might have been lynched, which is just nuts to think that could have happened to him, but it apparently almost did, at least in this movie. He, Andre Holland, was in Sugar, which is a baseball movie you and I have talked about a little bit that we should see at some point. And then he played the older Kevin in Moonlight. Lucas Black, of course, is the quarterback in Friday Night Lights, and he's been in some of the Fast and Furious films. Friday Night Lights is probably a better role overall. He has more screen time, but I like him as Pee-wee in this movie. And when he has to step up in the middle to the last part of the film, he does. Yeah, he's got one of those scenes that I think a lot of people could easily criticize, which is the arm around the shoulders. Maybe we'll wear 42 one day, seeing it in the future type thing. But if he's going to be given dialogue like that, I think he pulls it off pretty well. The guy who's a bit of a surprise in this movie is John C. McGinley. He plays Red yeah. Barber, the broadcaster. He is an over-the-top kind of actor. We covered him in Any Given Sunday and in Point Break. But here is Red Barber. He's playing Red Barber. Very low-key broadcaster. Doesn't have a ton of screen time. Oh, doctor. <laughs> you almost forget he's even in the film, and yet he does a pretty good job not at all doing what he usually does, which is to be big. He was one of the guys I was specifically intending to ask you about because I know nothing about the character he was intended to play. I've never heard that particular announcer and John C. McGinley, in all of the roles I've seen him in in the past, is exactly as you described. So when you talk about relatively accomplished, even character actors in this movie that have very small and understated parts, McKinley's at the top of the list for me. And every time he was calling some action in the game, I was just like, are you okay, John? Are you literally phoning this role in? I don't understand. <laughs> You're saying it was an intentional choice to just be that monotone, low-key? I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Some technical people i got to mention here. The cameraman was Don Burgess. I think he does a very good job of making this movie look pretty. He's Robert Zemeckis's regular guy, so Forrest Gump and Contact and some of his better films, better-looking films especially. And the composer, Mark Isham. This is now the sixth film that we've done of his. He did Point Break, Hardball, Miracle, Invincible, and Warrior. I found the musical score of this movie wildly underwhelming, it had no impact on me whatsoever, even during those moments in movies like this. I expected a swell of emotional music or something and just didn't feel like I ever got that. But I would agree with you that the cinematography, they made this movie look period appropriate, but still pretty visually appealing for a movie that's covering some pretty serious content. We haven't really talked about the actual baseball in the movie, and you have said, rightly right. so, there's a lot of it. And to me, it was almost the... I don't want to say the weakest aspect of the movie because I've already said that's when Jackie isn't actually involved in any way. But this movie, for me, really shown when Chadwick Boseman had an opportunity to emote as Jackie Robinson. The games themselves, by and large, I found myself not really caring all that much about. Chadwick Boseman, I felt like, did a great job of emulating Jackie Robinson's swing. I believed him as Jackie Robinson. But aside from that, the visuals of the baseball itself in this movie... They really relied so heavily on tight close-ups, on cutaways. There was so little end-to-end wide-shot action to really make it feel like you were in the game that it was just like, okay, well, we're getting through the baseball so that Jackie can have his time on the field before we get back to the interesting struggle that he's trying to overcome. What that usually means is that the actors can't play the sport. Maybe Chadwick was convincing enough 
but not actually that great at baseball. I think he must have been, though, because he played athletes multiple times in his short career. Yeah. I like the baseball action more than you, I guess. It feels old-timey. They got the costumes and the sets the pretty right, I'd say. Yeah. The movie itself is so one-note, and it probably should have been directed by a black man, like I said before, but it really does know how to rile you up. I wanted yeah. to go out, and I watched this movie pretty late at night. It was about midnight when it ended. So I wanted to go outside and sock some white people right in the <laughs> face. <laughs> I guess I could have punched myself, but you know what I'm saying. You're supposed to get worked up about this and hate. Not hate, I guess. That's not really fair. But you're supposed to get worked up by what you're watching and be on his side. And you really do. The movie works in that sense. So maybe the sport isn't that effective for you. But I assume that it made you feel for Jackie the way you're supposed to. Oh, yeah, of course. And in short, you're correct. To me, this felt like a one-note movie. It was really a shining example of Chadwick Boseman's capabilities when he was trying to express, like I said earlier, all of Jackie Robinson's struggles but aside from those moments, it fell a little bit flat for me, but it still succeeded. Even if it was being manipulative at various points, it still succeeded. And it told a difficult story to tell in two hours reasonably well. It's a story that deserves, and hopefully at some point we'll get a longer runtime, whether it's miniseries or otherwise. I don't know if it made me want to go out and punch some white folks, but if you ever do feel that urge again and you go full Fight Club on yourself, please record it because I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see you losing it. Me and Tyler Durden punching each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ow! You hit me in the ear! That's for racism! <laughs> if I had to give this a score, I'd probably give it something like a 6 out of 10. It's deserving of being seen, if for no other reason, to watch Chadwick Boseman play this role. That is a fresh tomato, so you give it a fresh. Yeah, yeah for sure. I'd more like 7, even though this material would be done better by a well, Helgeland's an okay director, but a better director, some of the different skin tone. What if it had been Ryan Coogler, for example, but Coogler wasn't going to get this movie? The same year as this movie, he was doing Fruitvale Station, which Bev and I covered late last year. That was, I think, Coogler's very first film. But there's a guy who would have been a great choice to do this one. And of course, fewer sledgehammers right in my nose and right in your nose <laughs> could make this material quite brilliant, but it would probably require a lot longer than one movie. That's true for anybody, but these truly iconic figures who went through these types of things oh, yeah. in that time frame deserve more than two hours or two and a half hours that they got in these movies. I guess I like the movie more than you do, but I don't know if I'll watch it again for a long time. This strikes me as the kind of movie I might watch once every 10 years or something if I come across it on a streaming service, but it's not ever going to be something I think I'll seek out. A sports movie podcast should cover a movie like this, especially one you can release it on Jackie Robinson Day. Oh, by the way, not scorable. Bozeman and Bahari, gorgeous people, but this is about as chaste as chase gets. Especially when one of the characters early on in the movie gets chastised for having an extramarital affair and kicked out of baseball, or not kicked out, but suspended from baseball. It's like, yep, any potential for it being a non-chase movie is immediately gone. And then we delve deep into the racism and you're like, yeah, okay, not scorable. So happy Jackie Robinson Day. Everyone's going to be wearing 42 the day we release this podcast. Every single player will. It's one of the most important things that Major League Baseball does, even more so the last year now, because, of course, things really struck out with Black Lives Matter after last year's Jackie Robinson Day. I'm sure there'll be a lot of big celebrations today in baseball, a lot of big moments, and there better be if they want to follow through on what they said they do last year with all their what might have been performative stuff. Let's see if they really follow through. I think they will. I hope they will. They really have to. And again, I'll say, <sighs> Jackie Robinson's stress probably contributed to him dying at 53. What a shame that was. At least his wife kept up his fight for many years to come. And cancer... Chadwick Boseman, really? You couldn't have taken Donald Trump? Okay, oh, so. <laughs> I mean, fair. All right, in two weeks, we'll lighten the mood considerably as we talk about the movie with a lady place kicker. And I think that's as controversial as that one gets. Necessary roughness. <laughs> It'll be shorter, 
I don't know if there's much in the way of race stuff in there. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but a lot less controversial and juicy as this one was. <laughs> well, they do have a Hawaiian man as like a linebacker in that movie. So racism might be a thing we talk about again, but for entirely different reasons. <laughs> okay. I did not know that. <laughs> no, it'll be a fun one to talk about. It'll be like a palate cleansing movie, I think, after a pretty deep discussion here on this one. So, we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find our podcast wherever you get podcasts. Every single episode we've done so far, and many more to come in 2021 and beyond. Thanks for listening. Take your easy, dudes. I know that you will, Jackie Robinson. I don't need to say these kinds of things, but God bless you. You're a hero. You're a good Methodist boy.